All right. Thank you. Well, uh, if you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, uh, teaching expositorily through the book of Acts. We finished up in Acts chapter 19, where there was a big riot because the Christians were living like Christians, making a difference. People noticed. They didn't like it. It was caused them to lose their income, so they rioted. And now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 20. So let's turn and read God's holy inspired word together. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, and as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanying him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for accounts like this that are very real. Um, Lord, that meet us where we're at and in very real circumstances that don't gloss over things in life that are hard or difficult or even boring preachers. God, thank you that your word is, is good for our instruction. I pray that you would use your word to instruct our hearts, that we might hear from you. God, thank you that as I preach, you, by your spirit, make your words alive again. And so, Lord, our hope is not in me, but our hope is in you, the giver of your word. So in your name we pray in faith, asking you to do what you promised to do, that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish all that you've purposed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every family's different, aren't they? Maybe you know some families that are... I need to adjust this down. All right, is that better, Pete? All right, sorry about the pause there. Every family's very different, aren't they? Um... If maybe you're aware of families in the church who are very different than your family and maybe you think that's a little strange. Some families can be more focused on athletics and some families are, you know, maybe they're into wrestling, you know, or maybe some families are artistic and are into musical abilities and some families might be focused on more intellectual things and maybe on scientific pursuits. Some are focused on nature, maybe caring for God's creation and some are more agricultural in their pursuits. And so the way that all families do life is a little bit different, but no matter the family, there are some basic principles or, or priorities that each parent's given in raising their children, right? Every child has to be fed and receive some basic nutrition. 
Every kid needs food. That's a priority, no matter what the food might look like or whether it tastes as good. Some moms may not prepare the same kinds of meals as others, but feeding your kids is a priority. Another priority for kids is that is that they need to be instructed. They need to be taught on their own. They don't learn things on their own. They, they need to be instructed and need to be taught. No matter how it gets done, it's a priority of every parent to ensure that children are taught. And the Bible doesn't specify the means, the methods, so there's all kinds of biblically accepted methods to teach, to instruct your children. No matter what those methodologies are, um, children need to be taught. They need to be instructed. There's another basic priority is for the care and well-being and, and of children. It's, it's loving them, really. You know, there's a study a few years ago that I read about these um, baby chimpanzees that, that were born, and they took one, they immediately separated, had it on its own, and it was never touched, uh, was never spoken to by the caretakers, and was never allowed to see other chimps. And, and this, this animal failed to thrive. It got food, but it failed to thrive, and, and it lacked basic skills. They took another one, and they set it in the midst of not only a bunch of really attentive keepers, but in the midst of a big, whatever you call a group of chimpanzees. And, and boy, this chimpanzee thrived. And, and that's true for people as well. We, we need love. We need care. We need attention. There's a basic priorities for, for really for all parents, for all people. And it's not comprehensive. There's a bunch of other ways that, that we need to care for each other, care for our children, no matter the age and the maturity of the child is. And in the same way, God has given all of us some, some basic things as his children that we need. You see, we're all, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are one of God's children. You are fellow joint heirs with Christ and, and you're God's children. There's some basic priorities that as God's children that we all need as well. And they're not too altogether different, although they, we get fed differently. We get cared for differently. God's given some basic priorities for us as a church, as a people, as his children coming together. And so we can see at least three priorities we're going to take a look at in this passage for God's children that, that Luke has given to us. And, and now Luke's writing descriptively, and that's all the book of Acts. It's, it's descriptive. It's not proscriptive. That means that you're not meant to mimic exactly what you find here. We're not supposed to go and find a house that has an upper room and wait until it's late at night. And, you know, I'm not supposed to preach from 6 p.m. to midnight, right? Thank, thank God for that, um, for both of our sakes. And, you know, it, it, so we're not... Supposed to do the details there, but scripture does lay out priorities for us in this passage. And Luke is drawing our attention to those priorities. You see, Luke speeds up his narrative and he slows it down at different points. And at this point, actually, in between us seeing the riot in Ephesus, things have calmed down. Luke, in the first three verses, he skips about three years. And then he slows down for the rest of the narrative because he wants to show us some of the priorities. At the very beginning, he makes it, he shows the priority. And, and the first priority that we're going to see is the priority of encouragement. God, God's using his word to show us that it was important, not only for Paul, but important for the care and feeding of God's children, the church, that the church received encouragement. And so we see at the very outset, the priority of encouragement. That's our, that's our first point this morning. And, and where do we see that? Well, we see that in verses one and two. And it's, it's the word there is, is to comfort, to encourage, to, to care for. So by this time in his travels and his work, Paul is already at the place where he's, he's written letters to the churches in Thessalonica and Galatia and at least one to the church in Corinth. 
The uproar in the city of Ephesus had ceased. The Christians were living so overtly for Jesus there that the culture around them had been dramatically changed and it affected people. Idle sales were down there. People rioted. They were protesting it. God used the government official to, to protect and preserve the church. That's where we, we ended in, in chapter 19. And so now that things have settled down in verse 1, it's evident to Paul that after spending three years in Ephesus caring for the church, that Ephesus has grown up. They can function on their own. They're, they're at a place where they can, he can move on and care for other churches and make sure they're doing well. And so Paul here, we find him in, in the third, uh, in, his, in the latter half of the third missionary journey. And he's, he's looking forward to moving back through Macedonia. But before he leaves Ephesus, one of the first things he does, one of the primary things he does, and, and Luke never has throwaway words, it says that, he gathered, after that parishes, he gathered the people to him. He gathered the disciples to him, and he was encouraging them. And then, he says in verse 2, that when he went throughout the regions of Macedonia, when he probably went through cities like, like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Neapolis, he's going through all these cities. And what does it say about what he did in those cities? It says, when he gone through those regions, in verse 2, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. You know, I think this was a constant theme for the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, you continually see he's encouraging the church. And that's what's written about Paul. And, and not only is what's written about Paul, we know if you've, if you've ever opened up your Bible and read any of other Paul's other letters that he was the preeminent encourager, wasn't he? Paul excelled at the, at the art, at the skill, at the gift, at the priority of encouragement. I think it was because Paul understood God's grace. Paul was a man who had been personally changed by grace. Remember, he was a murderer. He had tried on his own to achieve great merit. You know, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one of the best Pharisees at at being righteous according to the law, but he realized he had no merit on his own, and it was only by the grace of God that he was saved. And I think that's what transformed Paul to be such an encourager. You see, Paul understood better than anyone that no merit, no amount of right living or right acting could ever earn God's grace and favor. And so he realized that any good work in him and any good work in the believers was an evidence that, that God's gracious activity was present. And he encouraged that. And he was seeking to encourage. And I think he was also an encourager because he wasn't self-righteous. He didn't assume he knew anything because of his own ability. He, he was already the most accomplished and probably the most learned Pharisee in the day. But he realized that was all like rubbish. And he wasn't self-righteous. And I think that's why he excelled and, and knew the importance, the priority of encouraging. He knew his abilities had been been given to him by God. And he was encourager because he was humble and grateful to God personally. And I think that that's, it's important for us to see that encouragement, it's, it's fruit that's cultivated from a humble and grateful heart. And Paul knew that deeply salvation was by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and, and he had nothing to boast about in this, in this work that he was about. And it's what motivated Paul to live this life of devotion and sacrifice and zeal for God. And so because Paul knew what truly transformed and motivated him and what motivates us to live for Jesus, you see that wherever Paul goes, he's constantly seeking to encourage. 
He's constantly seeking to encourage the churches he interacted with. And so Luke is showing us encouragement, not just for Paul, but for the churches, was a priority. He made sure that the last thing he did before he left Ephesus was encourage them. And then the primary thing that Luke notes is he's going throughout all these regions, and he's probably encapsulating over two and a half years. He he broad brush strokes that and says, the primary thing Paul did in all those regions of Macedonia, the primary priority for Paul as he went through those regions of Macedonia was encouragement. And I don't think God wants this model, that priority, to be lost on us. And that's why it's mentioned both verse 1 and 2. And that's why Luke draws our attention to it. We can see that Paul, he encouraged them specifically. We don't know that from this verse, but we know that from reading his letters. If you've ever picked up the book of Thessalonians, I know about 20 of you are going through. We have a Sunday school class on the book of Thessalonians on Sunday mornings. It's happening at 8.30. And um, you're seeing probably already that, boy, Paul, he's just... An incredible encourager. The whole book of Thessalonians is, is encouragement after encouragement after encouragement. First Thessalonians 1, 2. I'll give you an example. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Boy, it's encouraging and know that he's praying for them. And remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. So he's encouraging. We see your work of faith. And he says, in your labor of love and steadfast of hope in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to encourage him in verse 4. He says, for we know brothers loved by God. What's he doing here? He's, he's giving them encouragement where God's been at work. And because he knows that God's chosen them and loved them. He says, loved by God, that God, he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. And boy, that's the kind of encouragement that we need. We need to know when those times when we're struggling, we're doubting, that we're secure in him. Because he's chosen us. We need to know that... Boy, there is good things happening in our lives, and that's because God's at work. And so Paul was a preeminent encourager, and that's how kind of Luke summarizes his ministry. And a guy named John Stott, he summarizes Paul's ministry of this in the verse, and he says, Luke characterized Paul's ministry to them as speaking many words of encouragement to the people. Encouragement, he says, is a vital ministry in establishing Christian disciples. And isn't that true? And then Stott goes on to say, and the principal means of its exercise is literally much word. Nothing encourages and strengthens the people of God like the word of God. And so Paul's, Paul's encouraging the church in Ephesus. He's going throughout the regions of Macedonia, summing up about two and a half years, and he's encouraging them. That's what he's seeking to do. I'll give you another example from 1 Thessalonians 2, 11, of the kind of encouragement that runs throughout that book and, and really all throughout Paul's letters. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Church, we need to hear that kind of encouragement. I know as a pastor, I'm aware of where God is at work in our church in so many ways. God's at work to cause people who would otherwise be selfish to love one another, to care for each other to serve each other. And there's so many examples of that going on. And because of that, I am confident that God's going to continue to be at work in our church. 
You know, God's brought us through difficult times, and, and that's encouraging to reflect back on that and say, because God's brought us through difficult times, by His grace, I have faith that He's going to continue to help us grow as a body, as a people individually. You know, you think about even the letter to the Galatians that Paul wrote, and it was probably his hardest letter because the Galatians had forsaken kind of the grace of God, and they started trying to do things on their own. But even to the Galatians, he he shares personal encouragement about the grace of God and he encourages them in, in correction by pointing them back to the grace of God which is their only hope and the kind of encouragement that, that Paul was giving wasn't just saying boy," you know hey good job you, you look good this morning you know that that may be okay encouragement some people need to hear that but I think Paul went even deeper than that you know he didn't just say thumbs up he gave specific he gave personal encouragement to the church. And it was a priority for him. And so we know this way. He goes all throughout the cities of Macedonia. By Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. I was thinking about yesterday. About a hundred of us attended, as Aaron mentioned, a marriage seminar. And it was very encouraging. And we focused on some scriptural principles. We took time to apply God's word to our lives. And I believe it's going to bear much fruit in the marriages in this church and, and Lord willing, it's going to bear fruit outside of that as well. And there was a, a man named Crawford Lords. He's a pastor of a church down in Georgia. And he just kind of made one passing comment. He shared it really briefly. It wasn't even a big, big deal. It wasn't a big idea, but it really struck me. And he mentioned in passing that his job as a husband was to encourage his wife. And he said, and fill her sails with fresh air. So that it carried her forward. And I love that picture. It, it affected me personally. You know, that's a, that's the kind of husband I want to be. I want to, I want to fill my wife's sails with fresh air. And I like that picture. Encouragement. It's like, it's like wind filling the sails of a ship to help propel it forward. And that's not just something that, that husbands or wives are called to or that pastors or parents of children are called to. We all need that same experience of encouragement because you know what? We, we stall out. As we're kind of going through life, our, our ship stalls sometimes. And, and encouragement functions like that. It functions like fresh air being pushed into the sails of our ship and, and it helps propel us forward. You know, in the end, I think the best thing that any of us will ever hear, any of us Christians, the thing I long for the most is, is, is to hear those words from my Savior that says, well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master that's the ultimate encouragement at the end of this life but in the here and now we need encouragement to help sustain us that was a priority for the church then it's meant to be a priority for the church now sometimes we need to know where the course that we are called to is. You know, sometimes we lose track. We lose our way. We're going through life. We, we forget where we're, where we're heading. We, we lose track of things. We need encouragement to kind of set us back in the right direction. Other times, we need encouragement to stay the course because we get weary, don't we? Sometimes we just need encouragement to keep going, to persevere through rough seas, to trust that the day will break on the other side of the storm. Some of you are going through storms in life right now. You need encouragement from God to know that He is faithful. And that he will preserve and keep you. In Paul's encouragement, we're just giving so many examples all throughout his letters. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, there's a command at the end of that, 
that chapter and he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. So it's not just a priority, it's a command in Scripture there and in Hebrews as well. And as long as it's called today, encourage one another is what Hebrews tells us. So how do we do this personally? How do we, how do we begin? How did Paul get to this place where he made a priority of encouragement? Well, I think it starts with cultivating gratitude to God in your own heart. You know, thinking about Paul's example, realizing, remember, that anything that you know, anything that you have, any merit... It's all from God. That any merit you've earned on your own really is as rubbish. And all that you are is because of God's grace. I think that's where it starts. Remember that God made you. He gave you the brains, the talents, the abilities, the, the things that you have. We can't boast as if anything is really from ourselves. Paul tells us that. Why do you, if everything you have is a gift, then why do you boast as if it's not? For those of us that have families, maybe we can start with our own family to, to be making a priority of encouragement. Encouraging your siblings, your spouse, your parents. Maybe you can, as a church, we need to encourage other people in your small group. Look for opportunities to encourage people who are downcast or maybe seem to have lost their way. You need, maybe you need a strong encouragement to, to stop sinning and to turn to Jesus because they can find hope there. Maybe a young mom here is struggling. I bet there's a lot feeling like they have no idea what to do and they're overwhelmed. They need specific encouragement from Scripture. Maybe a mom or dad here feels like a parenting failure. And if you're a mom or dad, I don't, I don't know any mom or dad who's not felt like that at some point in time. Like they've failed. And we need to encourage each other with Scripture so we can be strengthened and continue on in the faith, realizing that it's ultimately God who holds our children. I think all of us need to remember anything good in any of us as a gift from God, we can encourage each other in doing good. Even if, listen, if, even if you just see somebody heading in the right direction, if they just desire to do good, we need encouragement there. Because you know what? Even our ability to turn from our ways of sin and see that we need to turn somewhere else, that's a gift. So Paul made it a priority of encouragement. And I think we just need to, to be others-focused and alert enough, long enough, to notice that there's tons of opportunities daily for encouragement. And isn't that how God motivates us primarily? He primarily brings encouragement. Yes, he brings conviction, but you know what? That's encouragement too. That's encouragement that he's freed us from sins. We no longer have to be enslaved and a bondage to that anymore. And that he's going to change us and that we have the ability to turn. God, God continually encourages. Look throughout scripture. The bulk of the New Testament is encouraging you about who you are in Christ you know, look at, think about Romans 6. You're no longer dead in sin, but you've been made alive in Christ. I need that kind of encouragement. Because sometimes I feel like I'm dead in sin. And so we see this priority of encouragement. And then verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul goes from encouraging Ephesus and giving encouragement in all these regions all over Macedonia. And then he goes down to, to Greece, and that's a common name for Achaia. Luke's called it Achaia before he calls it Greece here. It's, it's probably the area around Corinth. And he stays there for three months and then he was planning to set sail, it tells us, from Greece and go to directly to Syria and then Jerusalem. And, but it tells us, Luke says, when he discovered a plot against him, and that most likely means to kill him, by the way. And so he decides to go back through Macedonia. You know, Paul wasn't stupid. Um, he realized this is not a good idea to go and get killed. You know, maybe he was going to set sail from, from Corinth on a ship full of Jewish pilgrims because we know he's trying to get to Jerusalem by, by Passover. Maybe he heard that, you know what? 
boy, that'd be an easy place to kill a guy and throw him overboard at night and no one would ever be the wiser. And so he decides, well, maybe I'll skip the whole Passover thing in Jerusalem and I'll go back through Macedonia. And so he goes, he goes back through Macedonia and, and Luke condenses about two years total between verse one and, and, and verse five and six. He's condensing things down. And what is he highlighting? He's highlighting, hey, encouragement was a huge priority for Paul in the churches. And then he highlights something else. He slows down, really, in verse 5. He slows things down, tells about their brief trip to Taras. He says where they only stayed for seven days. And he makes note of the time period because he's showing that Paul is, is trying to get back to Syria. He, if he wants to make Jerusalem by Passover, he has about 50 days to get there. He would he had, he had encouraged, if you read through Corinthians and some of his other letters, he was encouraging all these churches he's visited to take up a collection. And so he's going to be heading back with this collection back to Jerusalem. He wants to get there by the Feast of Pentecost so he can offer it. And so we see that Luke is starting to slow things down again. And the second thing that he's highlighting as he slows this narrative down is that the church gathered together with Paul in Troas. And it's interesting because he didn't tell you about any other, any other gatherings, but he's wanting to highlight what was important. Encouragement was, was a priority, and then gathering together was a priority. He doesn't just throw this in there, but he's showing an apostolic pattern, really, of, of the church meeting together. And then specifically here, he, he talks about the meeting on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And he says that they're, they're gathering together to break bread. And from this, we're going to see this, this second priority that we're going to look at today, which is Luke is showing us the priority of gathering together, showing us priority of, of encouragement and he shows us priority of gathering together. You know, what we do here on Sunday is important. What we do here on Sunday is not just happenstance. We don't gather um, just because, hey, it sounds like a good idea and we all love you. Now, what we do all love you, but it's much, much more than that. You know, imagine if I told you that, you know, hey, the Rawlings family, we um, we grow just fine on our own. We don't really need each other. When we go home, at night and, you know, during the day we're home. We don't really talk to each other. We just kind of do all do our own thing. We go to our separate ways. We, you know, um, the girls go in their room. I don't know what they're doing. And, you know, Julie and I go our own separate ways. And I do a little reading. I don't know what Julie's doing. Some about the house or something. And, you know, the kids all go their separate ways. And, you know, yeah, we're just really more comfortable on our own. And, you know, we... We do find that way. And what if I told you that, you know, we're, we're all growing really well, even though we don't really speak to each other, we don't do anything together. You think, you're nuts, man. Your family's not growing. You can't help your kids grow. You can't disciple them. You can't care for them. There's no way you're growing relationally. There's no way that you're going to encounter difficulties and even arguments and those things that you kind of need, actually, so that you can learn that you're selfish. And so it would be absurd if if I told you, yeah, discipling, nurture, care, you know, all those things, encouragement, all those things can happen even if we don't really get together and talk, right? That'd be just really absurd. Discipling, though, and nurture and care for each other as the church family that God's made us to be, that, that is absurd to think that happens in isolation either. It would be absurd for us to say that as a Christian, we can go through life on our own. We don't need to gather together. We don't really need to see each other. We don't really need to talk. We don't really need to get to know each other or have arguments with each other. And by the way, that's one of the benefits of getting together. You're going to argue. You're going to learn you're selfish. You're going to learn you have issues. You're going to learn you have problems. So the early church knew they needed to gather together and they made that a priority. Now back then there's a few things to note 
and specifically about this timing, that that they met on the first day of the week for church. There was it was not the typical Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. This was the first day. Why they do that? Well, because it was the day that the Lord Jesus was resurrected. And they celebrated that. And there's a precedent for that all the way from Acts 2. There's something else to think about that this wasn't their day off. Some people think, you know what? I, I can't do anything else. And if I do anything else that day, there's no way I'm going to get together with God's people because I'm just too tired. I bet in the first century life wasn't easier than now. Just a guess. You know, they didn't have some of the conveniences that we, ha- we have. And they probably, a lot of them were working with their hands. They were probably exhausted. And so by the end of the day, though, they knew they needed their family, their church family. And they gathered together. And so we see them gathering together on the first day of the week. And that was a pattern that just emerged very early on from the early church. And in Acts 2, the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week. Um, Sunday for Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul's giving instruction to the churches there. And he says, hey, when you get together on Sundays, take up an offering and set it aside on the first day of the week. So that by the time that I come, you won't like have to hurry up and, and take up an offering all at once. You can just do that every Sunday when, you, when you're getting together. And the reason they, they did this is because they wanted to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And I was really excited this morning that and we happened to be experiencing communion together. That we, we got to share together in communion with each other and with the Lord as we remembered his death. But we don't just remember his death when we do that. Remember his resurrection. We're looking back and saying, God, thank you that on the cross you paid the price for all my sins. Your body was broken for me. But thank you that you're broken no longer. And I have hope that if you have new life, I have new life in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you spilled your blood, that in your life um, all of my sins have been covered and paid for. And in your life, in your blood, I have life. And so they were celebrating as well, just like us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says they were gathered together to break bread. And that, that phrase, the common phrase that Luke uses, now not every writer says breaking bread and they mean communion. Now what Luke does in both Luke and Acts, when he says they gathered together to break bread, he's, he's talking about communion. But he's not only talking about that because later we'll see that he's also seems to be talking about they had a meal together. And so, you know, if First Corinthians 11 is, is to be used as a kind of a, an example, they, they, early church gathered together, they shared a meal together, much like Jesus shared a meal with the disciples. And at some point in their fellowship meal together, they broke bread together. Specifically, now for the disciples here, remembering the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's a theme that goes throughout the book of Acts. Is, is that remembering, is that breaking bread, it's that resurrection, that new life theme. And so they made it a priority to gather together as a church community for fellowship, even though they worked all day. They made it a priority to celebrate the resurrection. It was central to their life and their hope for the future. But not only that, here's the third thing we're going to see in a minute, is that they made it a priority to gather together to hear God's word preached. You know, Paul talked with him, or as the NIV says it better, really, in this case. It says Paul spoke to the people. He, he homiletic the people. He, he preached to the people. He was preaching and teaching the people about the word of God. So the third priority of the church that Luke draws our attention to is he's slowing this narrative down. There's encouragement. They're gathering together. And then what's the third thing that they're doing is there's a priority of the preach word. And hearing God's word preached, it's, it's like taking plants that are behind 
a window with closed curtains and it's like watering them and then opening up the curtains so that the sunlight can shine down on the plants and they can receive its energy. In the same way, preaching is meant to function like that, like water and like shining the light of God's word down on all of us so that we can receive energy and God's empowering and enabling through his life-giving word. And tells us that because Paul... It's kind of comical, and I'm, I'm thinking, boy, I, I felt for them. You know, it, it tells us because Paul intended to leave the next day, he prolongs his speech, his his preaching, his message until midnight. So he at least preached until midnight. I don't know if they got together somewhere around five or six, and then and then they probably started, you know, he probably started preaching six, six thirty, whatever. Then he goes till midnight. Talk about long-winded. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine and I, we sat beside each other in a class together and there's a, a really well-known counselor who was teaching. He was an, he is still an incredibly gifted man. He is, uh, his content is amazing, but the problem is his voice is really soothing. And he talks so monotone and so long that it's almost impossible to not fall asleep. And to make it even worse, he taught for about seven hours a day for, for a whole week. And I thought I was gonna go nuts. But his content was so good and I so wanted to hear it. And he was a packing, unpacking and applying scripture in a way that it addressed my heart. And, and we, I, I knew, and my friend and I, we knew that we needed to hear it, even though he was a terrible public speaker, like Paul probably was too, from his writings, what he says about himself, what other people say about him. So my friend and I, when we were sitting there all week, we sat beside each other and we got some ballpoint pens and we stabbed each other in the leg the whole time. I'm not kidding, we really did. We stabbed each other the whole time to keep each other awake. We were just jabbing each other with this, our fine point pins to stay awake. Because whenever either, either one of us looked like we're struggling, you know, you kind of do this the whole like, oh gosh. <laughs> or you look down at your paper and you notice you were taking notes and there's this long squiggly line that kind of goes down the right hand corner. Well, then all of a sudden it's just jerk up. That's when you get stabbed, right? So we, we were doing that because we, we, we so realized the treasure of what we were hearing. And, you know, today, it's been, you know, 16 years or so since then. And and I still remember very vividly some of those foundational truths that were life-transforming. You know, it took some effort. I'm guessing it took some effort for them to sit and stay awake. We were even Paul. You know, they said of Paul, his speech is not impressive. I can't imagine preaching or listening uh, to people preach, even me preach, whoever preaches. I couldn't, I don't know how great the preacher is from dinner time until midnight. You know, that'd be equivalent of us starting here at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, just going till five, right? You, you all up for that? Who's up for that today? You up for that, right? Excellent. We got one taker. I like you a lot. <laughs> I didn't even pay him. You know, that makes our times when we go long and maybe go an hour seem pretty tame, huh? Uh, I'm not justifying that. I'm just saying, you know, it's in comparison. You know, I, I think everybody here, including me, is glad we don't preach in, for six hours. But Paul was committed to preaching the word. And the people there, they were committed to hearing the word of God preached. You know, I think, hang on, you know, this is the Apostle Paul. And you'd be right, his content was phenomenal. He wrote scripture after all. But he wasn't a great orator. And I would have loved to have heard him preach, even if I had to pinch myself to stay awake. And you might have had to have. I don't think you would have ever ever kind of thought, boy, that was a waste of time. And obviously the church then, they made it a priority to gather together. Luke's drawing our attention to that. 
Paul preached until midnight, is what Luke's saying. Can you believe it? And they all stayed. And, and then he illustrates the point dramatically for us, and he sets up this scene. I want you to just picture it in your mind for a moment. He sets up the scene in verse 8, and he says, Now there were many lamps in the upper room. You can kind of picture this dark room. It's midnight, and these oil lamps are flickering, you know. And the room's kind of heavy with smoke, you know, and, and, and it's dark. And I can imagine, oh my gosh, how hard it would be to stay awake. You know, we, we don't, that's why we try not to dim the lights when we preach. Because naturally we want to fall asleep when things get a little dark. And especially this flickering light is kind of hypnotic. And, and then the kind of the oil in the air is robbing all the air of oxygen. And they're in this upper room, this private house, and on the third floor. And it wasn't just late. Paul was talking forever. And that's not the ideal setting to preach in. But it is the ideal setting to fall asleep, right? And so... They're devoted to hearing Paul preach. And, and I love the picture here. Think about it. Um, he tells us of this young man named Eutychus. Um, he's probably somewhere between that, that phrase is somewhere between 8 and 14, but most likely somewhere around 12 to 14. Eutychus, he's still there. He didn't go home and go to bed. He's still there. He's trying to stay awake. He wants to hear God's word. He's making a priority in his life, and he's trying hard. And this guy whose name, by the way, ironically means lucky, he, uh, <laughs> Eutychus, lucky Eutychus, he, he's getting tired and you can just picture he's starting to fall asleep, you know, and I used to hear that if you start to fall asleep, you know, hey, stand up or move to the back and so you don't fall asleep and so you can stay awake, whatever. And so Eutychus, he gets up and he moves to the window ledge. He's trying to get some fresh air because my gosh, it's stuffy in here. And, and so he's sitting by the window, he's struggling to stay awake and he wants to get this fresh air. And then verse nine tells us. He says, this young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep. You know, there's there's some, maybe you're struggling this morning, maybe you struggle from time to time, then you, you struggle to stay awake, and it's all right, you, we, we know you who you are, and, I'm, and we really do know who you are, by the way, and that's okay, it's okay. <laughs> um, I've been in your midst as well, and if you're honest, we've all been there at some point in time. Luke's not trying to say it's bad to fall asleep, and he's not correcting Eutychus here, and neither are we correcting you for falling asleep. Although it is kind of humorous sometimes to see people do this, you know, kind of jerking up all of a sudden. You know, I can sympathize. You know, maybe some here work all night, come to the church in the morning, so hard to stay awake. Others have fussy kids at night, and maybe some people on medication makes it hard to stay awake. Maybe it's just warm and you're tired. Luke's not saying Eutychus is wrong. He's saying, no, man, Eutychus was trying. He, this poor boy, he was trying. It was midnight and he was trying. He made a priority. He was trying to stay awake. And so you can just picture him. He's sitting by this window. His head's probably nodding a few times. And finally he's kind of slumps. And then he kind of, woo, he goes out the window. And I can imagine all of a sudden everybody woke up, right? Like, oh, oh my gosh, Eutychus, he's dead. I mean, talk about like interrupting the service you know, a little bit. I've, I've been in, in services where we had to call an ambulance before and that kind of just, yeah, we were done. Um, and so you think they would be done. But we're going to see in a minute that they weren't. It's kind of surprising. So a guy dies, right? You know, he's, he's going till midnight after all. So like, hey, hey like, Paul, give it a break, man. Give it a rest. You're going to midnight. It's enough already. Somebody's already dead because you preached so long. And so we don't see that. We, uh, you know... And by the way, a physician is writing this book, which is important to know. So when, when Luke, the physician, says he was taken up dead, he probably was the one to make sure and check on him. And, and he knew he was dead. And, and so he's taken up dead. 
But then in verse 10 it tells us, he says, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. He was making a prophetic announcement um, of, of, of healing that, that was just happening there. It wasn't that he wasn't dead and Luke was like, and Paul was saying, oh no, he's not really dead. Look, he's still living. No, he was dead. He was taken up dead. But Paul went down and he, he did something that was very like, if you've ever read in, in first and second Kings, it was very like what both Elijah and Elisha did. You know, when, when the prophet Elijah, he prostrates himself over this dead boy in first Kings and, and then life comes back in as he prays for him. And, and Elisha, looking back to his, his, his master, the prophet, he does the same thing. And a boy is taken up alive. And, and I'm guessing that Luke is showing us this account here. Because he wants us to see that, that Paul is kind of a replacement as an apostle. Apostles are replacements of the Old Testament prophets. That would be the Old Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophet. The equivalent is the New Testament apostle. And so, so Paul, just like a prophet, he is a man who speaks God's words. And so Paul's ministry needs to be a priority. And when he speaks, it needs to be a priority. And his, the hearing of God's word needs to be a priority. So Luke is showing, just like, just like the prophets spoke God's word and in demonstration and affirmation what they were speaking of God's word, great miracles happened. And so a miracle very much like this. And, and maybe Paul even was putting his faith and saying, God, if you did that through the prophets, he knew that his calling was as a, the New Testament equivalent. And so he prostrates himself and, and he comes alive. And then the funny thing is, Paul, Paul did not interpret Eutychus falling out the window as uh, a mistake that Paul preached so long. You know, he wasn't saying, oh, man, I preached so long. I better not do that anymore. No, in, in verse 11, look down your Bibles for a moment, just verse 11. The reason that Luke is sharing this account about Eutychus and about how they were devoting themselves to God's word, they were the priority of hearing God's word preached is so that even when somebody dies, when it's late at night, when it's really difficult through really trying times, what do they do? Look in verse 11. Man, when Paul had gone up. And they, they went and they had a meal together. <laughs> so Eutychus dies. He's made alive again. They're like, hey, why don't we go up and eat? And so, but after they ate, here's what it says. He conversed with them. And that word for converse, it's the same English word that we really have for homily or sermon. He went and started preaching again. Like, oh my gosh, Paul, really? But it shows us that Paul took his role as, as the New Testament equivalent of, of, of the Old Testament prophet of proclaiming God's word very seriously. And it showed that the people took hearing the preaching of God's word seriously because they didn't go home. They stayed and he conversed with them. It tells us a long while. And that's kind of an understatement, right, Luke? You know, they went from midnight says until daybreak. And so he departed. He didn't, he didn't think, you know what? I should stop preaching. Now today we don't have any living apostles with us to teach God's word, but we do have the gift of the apostles with us. What is that? It's, it's God's word. It's the teaching the apostles wrote down for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit as God's word. And so, in the same way, we're to devote ourselves to hearing God's word preached. That's why I get up and do this. Not because, you know, I just have great confidence in myself. Actually, it's far to the reverse. My confidence is in the fact that 
God somehow takes my feeble words to explain his word and make it alive. And God sows his word in our hearts and all of our hearts and mine as I'm preaching and yours as you're listening. And God transforms us as his word is preached. So we devote ourselves to the teaching and preaching of God's word. And from the very beginning of the church, the various, the various churches, they, they obeyed the command that, that Paul gave them to read aloud the scriptures and to explain them. And so they, they carried out this practice of reading along with scriptures and, and listening to God's word explained. So ever since those early days, the church has always made a practice to hear God's word preached again. Why? Because the Bible is God's word for us and his word is living and active. And he, he intends for his word to be spoken again and explained and expounded and applied. And God speaks to his word and, and through his under shepherds, because that's all Aaron and I are. We're just under shepherds of the great shepherd. But you know what he gives us to feed you? He gives us the word. That's what we're doing. That's why we gather. Just like earthly children need to be fed, we need food. We need to gather. We gather around in our small groups during the week because we need to take the word we've heard and try to apply it to each other corporately, communally. We need to make listening to God's word a practice not just on Sundays, but also or Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, whenever your care group meets, so that we can say, listen, we heard this same word together. I know you heard it. You know I heard it. Let's help each other not forget it because we're prone to forget. Let's help each other apply because we're prone to not apply, to just walk away and think we changed because we heard something good and think, yeah, I heard that I was convicted. I'm really different. We can say, no, we're really not. So we need to make a practice and a priority of hearing God's word preached like they did. And we're, we're not modern day apostles. We don't speak infallibly. Quite to the contrary. We're fallible. We're weak. We're flawed. But we do strive to faithfully proclaim and expound God's word. It's powerful to change our hearts and minds. That's where I hope our confidence is in. Maybe, you know, our preaching style is not what you like. So what? I know it sounds terrible to say that. We're trying to improve. I'm always trying to improve. We're always trying to grow. But my confidence is not in any given style. Maybe you hear somebody else who's got a different style. You're like, man, I could never listen to him. I, I would discourage you from thinking that way. I want to encourage you whenever you hear anyone preach God's word, that you're listening for God to be speaking, no matter the style, no matter the illustrations or lack thereof, no matter how monotone the voice might be and put you to sleep. Work through it because it's God's word being proclaimed. And that's what makes us alive. I know it seems self-serving, but really, I, I don't know of a better way to feed because God's called us to do that. And so we preach because God somehow uses our flawed words to proclaim his flawless word. And he mediates his word to my heart and your heart and our minds by his spirit. And he transforms us into his image. And you know, and it's over a long period of time of sitting under God's word that transformation happens. Not one and done. That's why you need to be in a church regularly every Sunday. Because you need to be bombarded with the truth. Why? Because you're so saturated. All of us are so saturated in the lies of the world and the lies that our own hearts and desires tell us. And we need God's word constantly. So listen, God's word is what's transforming. Not my words or anybody else who preaches here or anywhere else. But he uses people to explain and apply his word and why you need to be part of a specific church? Because he uses 
a specific under-shepherd that knows what kind of diet you need to feed you specifically. So if you're just visiting and you're hopping from church to church, I want to encourage you to find a place and sit there for a long period of time over a long number of years, um, no matter if there's things you agree with or disagree. Why? Because we need a consistent teaching of God's Word in our lives. You know, Ken Sandy, he, um, he told once about the dangers of falling asleep. You know, falling asleep in, in church here, by the way, it's not going to bother me. It happens all the time, you know. Is there at least one every Sunday? Today, there's not. It's pretty impressive, actually. Um, but, you know, hey, often there's at least one, right? We're, we're, we're not, Luke's not drawing attention to that. I'm, I don't want to draw attention to that either. Falling asleep in church, no big deal. But falling asleep spiritually is dangerous. You know why? Because you can fall asleep spiritually and look like you're awake on the outside. You can be sitting here, awake, but spiritually asleep and not receiving God's word, not making a priority. And that kind of falling asleep, that's dangerous. That's really more dangerous. That kind of falling asleep is dangerous to us. Ken Sandy, he, he, in his commentary, he, he shares a story of how the great Martin Luther, he once shared a parable, and I'll close with this, a parable about once when the devil was sitting, he, he pictured this in his head, the devil sitting on his hellish throne, listening to his minions um, come and give him progress reports that they had made in opposing Jesus and, and destroying the souls of men and and one spirit comes to the devil and says, I was in a company of Christians crossing the desert and I loosed the lions upon them and soon the sands of the desert were strewn with their mangled corpses. What of that? Answers the devil. The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. It's the souls I'm after. Another reported, there was a company of Christians sailing through the sea on a ship and I sent a great wind that drove the ship on the rocks and every Christian was drowned. What of that? Answers Satan. Their bodies were drowned, but their souls were saved. It's their souls I am after. The third came forward to give his report, and he said, For ten years I've been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep, and at last I have succeeded. And with that, the quarters of hell rang with victorious shouts. Falling asleep spiritually is dangerous. That's why we need to make a priority. Of staying awake, and not just not physically, but make a priority of staying awake, a priority of, of hearing God's word, a priority of encouraging each other in that direction, a priority of gathering together. Ephesians five fourteen it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and here's the promise, and Christ will shine on you. Like those plants that you draw the curtains back, and his light shines on us. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Church, I want to, want to call us back to the priorities that Luke has given to us here. He's given us three priorities. He's given us a priority of encouragement, which really only happens when we're together. We're second priority, gathering together. And by that way, the content of that gathering together, it's, it's meant to be remembering Jesus and remembering his resurrection. And then the other priority we see is that they weren't just gathered together and encouraging. They were gathered together to hear God's preached word. And they were so committed, they stayed up all night, even when Eutychus dies. So, so church, let's be committed to keeping each other awake spiritually by encouraging each other, gathering together, sharing communion like we did this morning, remembering the resurrection, and commit to hearing and applying his word together. Amen? Um, Matt, if you go ahead and come forward, if you guys can stand for a moment, let's end with a song.
I'll pray. Father, thank you for your word. My confidence is in you. I pray that you would speak your words to our hearts, solidify them, that we would respond. Lord, I pray that you would give specific areas for each and every one of us to respond to you and that you would help us spur each other on to godliness. In your name we pray. Amen.